a love offering that night to sponsor that wonderful ministry that's taking place in Africa. Also want to let you know, three weeks from today is a Sunday you will not want to miss. We're going to be doing a very special service at 8.15 and at 11. It's the 10th anniversary of 9-11, September 11, 2011 is. So I'm really hoping that you will be here. We've invited um, the first responders from our city and from our county to be our special guests on that day. Uh, We also have other special guests that will be here to offer a word of thanks, and you will not want to miss September 11. That's the day of our youth group kickoff, both for the preschool, grade school, and also for Reveal, the junior high and senior high, and that is also the day that we are launching our 75 days through the New Testament challenge. The reading will actually begin the next day on September 12th. And one final announcement. The last Sunday in September is Apple and Pork Weekend, and it's kind of been a tradition that we have one service at 9.30, and that tradition will continue. That's September 25, one service at 9.30. I came in my office this morning, and I had a special gift waiting for me on my coffee table, and I I didn't quite understand what it was, and I opened it up, and this is what it was right here. I don't know if you can see this or not. And, you know, I thought to myself, it'd be really cool if someone would have given that to me the weekend that the Cubs and the Cardinals had played. And then I remembered that we've had a couple baseball games the last couple days. And I, I won't talk about the outcomes of those games at all. But, um, but if, if this is yours, you can come back and claim it at the end of the service. I hope you don't. I hope I can bring that out second service. Hey, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke. We're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Luke today. This is week three of a four-week study entitled The Practical Atheist. And it's based on a book by Craig Groeschel entitled The Christian Atheist. We have bought 20, 25 copies of this. If you'd like a copy of this, we're selling it for our cost. I think it's $10. They're out in the, uh, the foyer. You can see Karen Rice after the service if you'd like a copy. But Groeschel defines a, a practical atheist as someone who believes in God but lives their life as if he doesn't exist. Someone that believes in God, but lives their life as if he doesn't exist. And and the first week, back on August 7, we looked at the person that believes in God, but doesn't fear him. And we looked at a couple of Old Testament examples. We looked at Abraham and how Abraham truly feared God to the point that he was willing to sacrifice his most prized possession, his only son Isaac. And God didn't make him go through with it, but he said, now I know you fear me. We also looked at the evil king Jehoiakim of Judah from the the book of Jeremiah chapter 36. And how when the word of the Lord came to him in written form, wouldn't that be cool to have the word of God come to you in, in written form? Well, guess what? It has through the Bible. King Jehoiakim had the written word come to him and he cut the scroll off verse by verse, and burned it in the fire. No fear at all of God. Last week, we looked at the the person who believes in God, but doesn't want to go overboard. And and we threw out that, uh, that, that phrase, the lukewarm believer, the lukewarm Christian. And we looked at someone that was just absolutely on fire for the Lord, the Apostle Paul, after his conversion, there was no turning back. He sacrificed it all for the sake of the call. And then we looked at the church at Laodicea and and how really they were lukewarm in their faith. 
One foot in the world, one foot in the church. You remember what the Lord said it made him want to do? I want to spit you out of my mouth. I want to vomit you out of my mouth. And that's a, that's a grotesque image. And that's why Jesus uses it to drive home the, the danger of being lukewarm. Well, this week, the big idea is I believe in God, but I trust in money. I believe in God, but I trust in money. In Luke 12, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the great church father, Augustine, said, where your pleasure is, there your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. There's this idea that our heart will really drive who we are. Even when our head tells us one thing, it's our heart that many times will really drive us. So I have a question for you this morning. And here's the question. Where is your heart this morning? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your heart this morning? There's a fact in this world, especially in America 2011, and this is the fact, we trust in money to provide happiness. We trust in money to provide happiness. Um, Not long ago, I received a telephone call, and I can't remember if it was this week or the last part of last week, but it was one of those days when the Dow went down like 500 points, something along those lines. And I was talking with a ministry friend, and you're just talking about family and ministry and life, and he said, you don't check the stock market every day, do you? And I said, no, I really don't. And I said, why? He goes, well, I check it a couple times every day. And then he told me how much money he had lost that day. And the good news was, guess what happened the next day? Do you remember? The stock market went up like $500. And that's just a small reminder that for many of us, we allow money to provide happiness. When we get a bonus, everything is great. When we lose our job, man, it's crisis time. And yet for all of us, our first call is not to trust in money, but to trust in God. There's a second fact, and that is that we trust in money to provide security. We think if I just have a little bit more in our bank account, if I just have a little bit more in my 401k, if I can just get a little bit further down the savings path, I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be secure. Fact, we trust in money to provide security. The big idea today is this, the number one competitor for my heart, for your heart, is money. It's the pocketbook. We have, many of us American Christians have allowed money, our treasure, to to provide happiness and security. And as a result of that, it really drives our heart. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture today. And you don't have to fill in any blanks today. You've got your outline. I really want you just to focus on what the Word of God says and this idea of how can we, instead of trusting money, truly trust God. The first scripture I want to look at is found in 1 Timothy 6, and it is maybe one of the most misquoted scriptures in all of the Bible. Here's what 1 Timothy 6.10 says. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, 
Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. The, with many griefs. the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. How do many people quote that verse? Money is the root of all kinds of evil. There have been people that have taken poverty vows for a lifetime based on a misinterpretation of this verse of scripture up here. It does not say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if you live, say, in a nice house, or you drive a nice car, or you have a nice boat, and you're thinking to myself, man, I'm going to just get zinged today. I'm just going to get blasted by this sermon. You're not. The Bible is full of people That God blessed incredibly when it comes to treasure, when it comes to money. And many of them were followers of Jesus. Some of Jesus' followers, we're going to look at one today that was incredibly wealthy, and he is commended for the, the faith statement that he makes related to his treasure. But here's the point, it's not how you have, it's what you do with what you have. And I will tell you this, and this is a real pet peeve of mine, I know people that suffer from the love of money that have very little money at all. Has this ever happened to you? You buy a new vehicle, and maybe it's not new, but it's new to you. And and, and you're you're driving somewhere, and someone sees you, and they just start busting your chops because you're driving in style. That that happened to me. We bought a a Ford Explorer here in town uh, uh, right after we started here from Randy Anderson, and on and on and on, and Boy, one of the first people that encountered me at church on a Sunday morning just blasted me. We're paying you too much money. You're driving a Ford Explorer. That, that, my friends, can be the love of money. You don't have to have money to suffer from the love of money. Um, in Luke 16, here, here's a scripture I really want to key in on today because this is really the heart of the matter. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. That's kind of the idea that I want you to look at, this this competition for your heart. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So with that, turn to Luke chapter 18, and I've really kind of entitled this study, What a Difference a Chapter Can Make. Dr. Luke, when he put together his gospel, I think did it strategically, and I don't think it's an accident that in Luke 18 we see a story of a person that has a lot of money and how he deals with that, and in Luke 19 the story of a person that has a lot of money and how he deals with that. So let's read this together, Luke 18, 18. It says, A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. You should be asking that question, by the way. If you never think about eternity, uh, something's wrong. If all you're thinking about is life on this earth, something's wrong. Jesus goes on and says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. He's going to Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments. Now listen to the pride in this rich ruler. Here's what he says. All these I have kept since I was a boy. What's he really saying? He's saying, I'm pretty good. I'm doing the religion pretty good. I'm keeping the law pretty good. Your big top ten list we call the Ten Commandments, Jesus, I've got that down. 
I'm keeping every single one of them. I think what he expected at that point was maybe a fist bump. They probably didn't do that in the first century world. Maybe a pat on the back and get back to being really good. Get back to being really religious. You the man, I think, is what he was expecting to hear from Jesus. But Jesus goes a little different direction. He says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Okay. He asked, right? He asked Jesus what he must do. Jesus gave him the answer. Look at verse 23. When he heard this, he became very, what's that word? Sad. Say that with me. He became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. That's a tragic story. And that's not a parable. That's an actual encounter that took place. It's tragic because if he had great wealth, Shouldn't it have been easy to give his great wealth to others? Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think? I can remember when I was 22 years old. I was making $17,900 a year. And that seemed like a lot of money at the time. And I can remember writing out that tithe check in the fall of 1992. And I can remember thinking, you know, if I wasn't writing this tithe check right now, we might be able to go out to supper tonight to a fancy restaurant. Or I might be able to get a different vehicle. I remember thinking to myself, you know what? It's going to be so much easier when I'm making double that or when I'm making triple that. And you know the reality is? 10% of $17,900 is a lot less than 10% of what a lot of us make, isn't it? In many ways. And so the principle is really simple. It's a principle I learned early in life. It's a principle parents, grandparents, teach your kids early in life. Get in the habit when you're making 17 to tithe because it makes it a lot easier to tithe when you're making 77 or 127 or whatever it is you may make. But he went away sad. Because where was his treasure? Where was his heart, I should say, with his treasure? He had a heart problem. He went away very sad. Well, let's flip over to Luke chapter 19. And I have to tell you, growing up, this was one of my favorite stories in the Bible. We used to go to junior church and we would sing that song. I love that song. Zacchaeus was a what? A wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I'm not going to sing anymore. We've already had some special music today. But the point is, is I love the story of Zacchaeus. Let's read that together. Verse 1, it says, Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was, what's that word? Wealthy. Same thing with the dude in chapter 18. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming his way. Now this is just really cool. This is providential here. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house Today. Now, I need to stop right there before we put the scripture up on the screen, and I need to explain to you this term, chief tax collector, it's only used in the entire Bible right here in Luke chapter 19. 
Okay, it's the only time that it's used, chief tax collector. But here's what it means. It means he was incredibly more powerful and more wealthy than the average tax collector. Say like a Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector before he became a disciple. And in the first century world, if you were a tax collector, here's what that meant. You had a license to cheat and you had a license to steal. Let's say the Romans wanted 30% tax on your income. The tax collector could come to your house and say, guess what? Rome's going through this big building project, or Rome's going through this big expansion, and it's not 30%, my friend, it's 50%. And you were helpless to do anything at all about it. So guess what you did? You got your checkbook out, you went to your wallet, and you gave them 50%. And guess where that extra 20% would go? To their pocket. And so Zacchaeus, the wee little man, he was a rich wee little man, okay? He had a whole bunch of money, and he'd earned it dishonestly. How do you think someone like that would be treated today? Well, what do you think? Would we want to have him come and eat at our home? Would we want to take him to Monocle's for some Sunday pizza? Probably not. We'd probably hate him, wouldn't we? Just being honest. Some of you are saying you don't hate. Well, you know what? You probably would hate him more than likely. And it's this guy, of all the people that Jesus encounters, that he looks up to and says, hey guy, come on down from the tree. Climbing is over. I'm going to your house today. What were the crowds saying? Disbelief. Couldn't believe their eyes. Couldn't believe their ears. Let's read on together. Verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But look at verse 8. It's one of the most radical declarations in all of the Bible. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, half, He's very, 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 very wealthy. He's giving half. And if I cheated anybody out of anything he knew that he had, I will pay him back four times the amount. Why four times? Anybody know? Anybody know? The answer is that's what the Jewish law said you had to do. If I cheated Sid and I was exposed, I didn't just pay him back the $25 that I cheated him. I had to pay him back four times that amount. What was the principle behind it? Don't be a cheat. You get caught, it's going to really cost you in your pocketbook a lot. Zacchaeus is a schooled individual in the law, and he says, I'm going to pay you back four times. That's a radical, radical declaration. And look how Jesus responds to it. Verse 9, he says, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And, and then just repeating what we've heard over and over in the Gospels, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So let's compare Luke 18 with Luke 19. You've got the rich ruler. You've got Zacchaeus, the wee little man. Uh, both are rich. And look at what happened in, in Luke 18. The rich ruler kept all of his money. And how did he feel? What's that word? Say it out loud. Sad. He was sad. He kept it all. His bank account stayed you know, inflated. 
He kept it all, but he was sad. And then look at Zacchaeus. He gave over half his money away. It's probably not a stretch to say that he lost as much as 70 to 75% of, of his possessions with that declaration. And he goes away glad? Can you explain that to me? Can you break that down for me? Ernie, do you understand that? I'll let you have the microphone if you can come up and explain it because it doesn't make logical sense. But here's the point, my friends, today. Ernie was sweating it. He was thinking, what am I going to say? And I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. Here's the point. When you say, I believe in God and I trust in God, not I trust in money, your world will be turned upside down in all the best kind of ways. Two things will happen to you that will change you forever. This is the difference that a radical relationship with Jesus makes. When you fall in love with Jesus, you will become strangely content. Strangely content. Is that a good word, content? Is that a good word? What do you think? Maybe it could be used in a positive way. It could be negative. I, I would never want to be content as a church with where we are. Would you? No, hopefully not. But when it comes to our money, when it comes to our possessions, when it comes to our treasure, I think it's very healthy to, to be content and not to, to play the game of I have to get more, I have to get better to be content. Listen to what... Um, the Apostle Paul had to say in Philippians 4, he said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And in Proverbs 19, this great nugget in chapter 23, the fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. When you fall in love with Jesus, you become strangely content. Secondly, when you fall in love with Jesus, you become irrationally generous. You don't have to be rich to be generous. That's a huge misnomer in our world today. Um, the thought is, if I don't make huge money, I can't be generous. Yes, you can. I'll never forget, early on in ministry here, the ministry wives got together and, and went over to lunch at uh, the Chinese restaurant, First Walk in Lincoln. And unbeknownst to them, a member of our church who worked in Lincoln was dining there, and he picked up their tab that day. I, I don't know what that was, $25, $30, I don't know what it is. But he went up to them and he said, I've got lunch today. Thank you all for letting your husband serve. God bless you. My wife still talks about that. That's generosity. And you can do that. And by the way, I'm planning to eat at El Rey tomorrow. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You don't have to be rich to be generous. Proverbs 11 says, one man gives freely, gains even more. Another withholds unduly becomes and comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And I think 
maybe the greatest two-verse passage in the New Testament on giving. I'd encourage you to memorize this. 2 Corinthians 9 says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided to give in his heart, not under reluctance or compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When you fall in love with Jesus, you will become irrationally generous. You won't be able to stop being a blessing to others. And so the bottom line this morning, this battle for the heart, the bottom line is a scripture Jim read during his offering meditation today. Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first God's righteousness. And the Lord's going to bless your socks off. The Lord's going to give you all the other stuff as well. So in that battle, don't fall for the love of money. I like what C.S. Lewis said. Here's how he put it. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Let's aim at heaven. Let's pray. God, thanks for today and thank you for your word. And I just pray that, um, that our treasure is being built up in heaven, not here on this earth. And I know that many of us sitting here today, we've been blessed ridiculously. And many of us here today, maybe not so much. But the overarching lesson for all of us is to love you first, to trust you first, and to know that you will provide. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So that's our prayer this morning is that we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And so this morning, maybe, maybe you felt like, you know, I've been trying to seek God, but, but I just need some prayer to, to get me farther along. Greg will be here. I'll be up front. Maybe part of your seeking first God's kingdom is to say, I've been going to this church and I want to place my membership here at this first, just to say.